I'm blessed to have the message today by Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled Jesus and the Oppressed. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here as it always is on a beautiful Sabbath day. And we finally got a little break from the heat, uh, which was probably the record for the year, I'm assuming, as far as days in a row, of, I think five days in a row, something like that, for 100 degree weather. So it's wonderful to see everyone here on uh, a beautiful Sabbath day, and as was mentioned, the title of my message today is Jesus and Oppression. As speakers, and those that have got up here and speak, all of us know that one of the biggest, sometimes, challenges and coming up with a sermon is making sure that we are presenting the congregation with the needs from God's scriptures. Making sure that the topics that we bring are truly relevant. And of course, all of the Bible is truly relevant. We would all agree. This is a universal book, transcends time, has universal principles. But one of the challenges sometimes is making sure that we are addressing issues that we face in our current day. Jesus and oppression. When we read the Bible, so much of the individuals that Jesus speaks with, that he encounters, they're involved in some sort of oppression. I wrote down the definition of oppression. If you just go to the Google, quick Google dictionary, it says, oppression is the state of being subject to unjust treatment or control. And we know that in the days of the Bible, there was a lot of oppression that was going on. Oppression that me and you might not quite understand because we live in 2022, or 23, excuse me. We haven't lived in an era where there's been, you know, governments... Uh, at least in our country, and some people can argue that in, there's forms of oppression in America, and there are, but I'm talking about political oppression that we've seen in history, and that sometimes we see around the world, of course, that still exists to this day. But that doesn't mean that we do not face oppression. It might not be in the same way that maybe we see certain governments oppress us as people, like they did back in the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Mongolians. We can go through all these different great kingdoms and empires of history that oppressed people and their subjects. But unfortunately, I think many of you would agree that we see oppression all over the place. We see people deal with things in this day and age that to some extent seems to be like an all-time high. We see people with diseases. That's a form of oppression. We see people with ailments, sicknesses. A big one today, and I think all of us would probably agree with this one, is mental health. Depression. Things like that. Increasing suicide rates, especially among younger generations. We live in a world, even though it's the modern age, and we can even, in this present age, have things done artificially for us through artificial intelligence. But yet, it hasn't 
solve the oppression problem that we see among humanity. We have better medical advances and things like that, but we know that there still is a spiritual war that's going on that needs to be addressed and that we as a church have to address. I want to go to Luke, the fourth chapter. A few weeks ago, when we were doing our Matthew Bible study, we went past a chapter in Matthew where it talks about Jesus healing many people that were sick and specifically a a leper. And we're going to get into that here in just a little while. But as I was preparing this message today, I was just thinking about the immense sadness that is going on in this world through diseases, through things like mental health, the struggles that we live in this, you know, living in this life that sometimes we go through. And that Jesus does address this issue of oppression, both physically as well as spiritually. And in Luke, the fourth chapter, we see that Jesus Just to give you a little context here, he's beginning what's known as his Galilean ministry. He's from the region of Galilee. He's from Nazareth. He's been baptized. He's been anointed, as the scripture is getting ready to say. And he goes around this region of Galilee, different towns, and he starts preaching in synagogues. And then he comes to his own town. Verse 14 of Luke 4, it says, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went through all of the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Verse 16, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And so he's now in his hometown. And it appears that he's, to some extent, enjoyed some success in terms of people liking what he had to say. And we know that that will change eventually, especially here in his hometown. And so just to make sure that we understand the context, Jesus, during this time, it says, as his custom was, this, of course, meant that there wasn't seeming anything unusual about what Jesus was doing. It says that it was his Greek ethos, it was his means, his habit, or his manner. And so Jesus goes into the synagogue, and being from Nazareth and and growing up in this city and and being from there, we know that people knew who he was, maybe a little bit more in this city than other people, because even later on we see them say, is this not Joseph's son, the carpenter? They were familiar with him. And he probably had attended the synagogue at several, several different junctures in his life. And so when this era was going on, the synagogue practice, it's somewhat similar to our modern practices of church. We have a church format. We have a way of doing things. The term synagogue simply means a gathering or an assembly. And after the destruction of Solomon's temple and things like that, whenever the uh, Jews came back, the Israelites came back, they developed this system known as the synagogue. And so in each city, there would be this gathering of individuals that would come together, especially on times like Sabbath and Holy Days. And so the synagogue concept developed pretty close, just a few years, probably a few hundred years maybe before Jesus' time here on this earth. And the order of services in a synagogue was most likely 
some sort of recitation of what's known as the Shema or Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter. Then they would have various prayers. They would have readings from the Law and the Prophets, maybe something known as an oral targum, which is basically a paraphrase in Aramaic for individuals that may not understand Hebrew. And then they would have some sort of homily or sermon, some sort of expounding upon the text of the day. And so up until this point, there wasn't seemingly anything you know, unusual about this scenario that we read here in Luke's Gospel in chapter 4. But in verse 18, or excuse me, verse 17, we see this read to us, or this uh, uh, written by Luke. It says, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now Jesus right here gives us five things that is his mission. Now, he's quoting Isaiah, Isaiah actually, chapter 61, verse 1 and half of the first part of verse 2, and possibly even including a portion of Isaiah 58, verse 6. But he gives us five things that we see after he reads this. We're not going to read the, the part when he puts it down. He says, in your sight today, these things are fulfilled. The first one was... He came to proclaim the good news to the poor. In all of these five things, there's a literal sense and a spiritual sense. And just like those individuals in Jesus' day, the vast majority or large portion, especially the audience that Jesus was speaking to, were a part of some sort of oppressed people group, especially his brethren, the Israelites, under Roman rule. Most of the people living in the first century, especially this part of the world, would be considered poor. To modern standards, they would be considered living in poverty. They would be in the socioeconomic category of poverty. And during this time, like many other civilizations, there wasn't the same type of socioeconomic systems that we may see today, where you have the largest class being the middle class, typically, then you're rich, and then you're poor is what, what we're used to dealing with here in the United States for most of all of our lives. Most of the individuals were in the poor category during this time. And those who were poor, they weren't looked at as very highly. They were despised. They were mistreated. They were simply, as the scriptures tell us, the forgotten, the overlooked. When we think today the concept of poor, we typically think in terms of one's lack of resources. And often we think of someone not having the ability or the stability to be able to provide financially for their life's necessities. But I think it's interesting because we see this group of people being so emphasized in the Gospels and in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament. This 
concept of those who are poor and the focus that God has on these individuals who are categorized as poor. We see that one of the Beatitudes in Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 5, verses 3, we see one of those says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus is born, his mother Mary, in Luke chapter 1, verse 52, in her prayer that we read in that chapter, she says in one of the lines in verse 52, He had put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. We see this emphasis on the poor, and I think that we can glean two things from it. I don't think that it's just the literal poor that Jesus is talking about. First of all, like those who are physically poor, all of us are spiritually bankrupt. All of us. It says that the good news has been come to be proclaimed to the poor. Well, who are the poor? Jesus had the poor with him, of course, as most people were. But why is it good news? You see, on one hand, there's good news proclaimed to the poor. This gospel message. And it brings two realities. Number one, that salvation is available. The good news that salvation is available, that there is a release, that there is an offering of freedom, that there is a way of reconciliation back to God our Father. And why is this good news? Because of the other reality. The other reality of the gospel message, which makes this truly a good news, is because of our innate poorness. We're all poor. We're all a part of this category. We are all totally and completely reliant on God. Every single one of us. No matter how much material means that we have in this life, it's all temporary. It has no power to extend beyond our mortal existence. It's such a basic concept, right? the good news, the gospel, that Jesus died and rose again, but it's so profound, the reality of it. Because when you think about that gospel message, it ultimately makes you turn and realize who we are, bare and naked before God, without Jesus. The second thing, proclaim liberty to the captives. Of course, this includes both physical captivity as well as spiritual captivity to sin. Those, as I mentioned, in Jesus' day would have well known what it meant to be in captivity. They had read their entire life about the story of their heritage, about how there was this intervention among their ancestors through Abraham and then through Moses in Egypt. And then on down the line through the promised land. And then somewhere their ancestors got off track and went into captivity. The northern tribes to the Assyrians and the southern tribes to the Babylonians. And all the way down to the very time period that they were living in. Under the auspices, the control of the Roman Empire. 
This word liberty is actually in Greek, alpheus, or aphesis. I'm not pronouncing that correctly, so I apologize. But it's translated as remission three other times in the Gospel of Luke in reference to the remission of sins. There is a spiritual reality here set you know, proclaim liberty to the captives and all of us like we're poor. We're all in captivity or we're in captivity to our sins, to our carnal nature, to the Egypt that we once all lived in. And we know these words that Jesus proclaimed as prophesied in the book of Isaiah right here has a literal interpretation because there will be a time where these individuals, where there will truly be deliverance physically on this earth. But even greater than that in the present right now, we know that there is a spiritual implication foreshadowing, of course, the work that was done by Jesus on the cross. The third thing, proclaim sight to the blind. This includes, again, literal blindness as we see Jesus going Throughout the region, healing people, many people that he heals, of course, are blind. But one of the things that we know is that it's a spiritual blindness that this world has. And that Jesus came to uncover and to present to those who had eyes to see the truth and the reality that God was bringing upon this world and unfortunately as we read in the Bible study many were blinded including me and you at one point in our lives the beautiful part of the classical hymn Amazing Grace we all remember that song but one of the parts is I once was blind but now I see the light of the world came as Jesus Christ and only those who have opened their eyes or opened their eyes to him can see it. Ephesians, the first chapter, verse 17 through 21. I was prompted to bring this passage. It says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, breaking into context here in Paul's letter, the Father of glory may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? There's a blessing through this gospel message in opening those individuals' eyes that were once blind. Verse 19. And what is exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. You know, like we were talking in the Bible study, we, we mentioned this idea of this concept of Jesus coming in and conquering the Roman authorities. Like many of them during that time wanted the Messiah to do. But the reality is what Jesus is conquering right here is even greater than that. Opening the eyes of men. 
opening the eyes, enlightening the human carnal flesh of man. The fourth thing, proclaim liberty to those who are oppressed. Now when we talk about this, and the reason I said you know, Jesus and the oppressed, and I'm reading all of this, we would probably all agree that all of these concepts that we just read, the concept of poverty, captivity, blindness, they're all forms of oppression. And we know that sin has as its consequence, of course, oppression. And we know, as I already mentioned, many during Jesus' day knew what oppression was. But we do too. We see that Jesus, all throughout his ministry, dealt with people who lived in physical poverty, but they all, all also oftentimes lived in sickness and demon-possessed states. And we know today, we see the same thing. It might not be in the same manner, but diseases and sicknesses, I've already mentioned mental health, depression, insecurities, insecurities about life, not having a, 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 a concept of self-worth, addictions, you know, oppression through addictions, and, and by no means am I excusing you know, us as humans of maybe sometimes playing a part and getting ourselves in these situations, but we know that people live in addictions that are oppressing, substance abuse and other ways of being addicted to different things oftentimes are just things that people have used to cope with traumas, with different things from their past. Maybe yourself right now are being oppressed by something. Maybe you yourself, and I think all of us would agree, when we are oppressed by these worldly things, we know it does one thing oftentimes. It robs us from the joy of the Lord's salvation. I think that one of the things that we sometimes, especially, you know, when you first come into the faith and, 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 and unfortunately different, you know, different sections of Christianity or denominations maybe even preach this outwardly. But this idea that, you know, being a Christian means that you're immune to these things of life. That somehow that you now, because you have freedom, and you do in Christ, that now you're just going to have the good life, that things are going to be easy. But we know that that's just, you know, it's just not true. It's not true in reality, as we see, and it's not true scripturally, as we see. The scriptures are clear. They say otherwise. And although Jesus does proclaim freedom from oppression, we still sometimes experience it in this life. And so the question is, how do we reconcile this? On one hand, Jesus proclaims us as free, and for there to be a liberty but we know that we still experience oppression. I think that there's many ways to explain this, but one of the ways that I think of is that although we have died in Christ, kind of like we talked about in the Bible study, we daily die, and that we've been given a freedom of life, we come up in newness of life, where we walk now in the newness of life with Christ. Unfortunately, we're still in this life, in this old self, 
We're still in this corruptible state. And Paul would talk about this time where we would have a new body that would transcend this old fleshly temporal body that we have. When I was younger, maybe you guys have, you know, uh, seen this before. Uh, and I'm bringing this out because I think Paul has something to say about this whole concept of how do we reconcile the struggles that we have in this life with this reality of what the scriptures say that we're free in Christ, that we've been made free, that we've been raised in newness of life. But whenever I was young and uh, played football, and you've probably seen this in different athletic activities, uh, Philippians, the fourth chapter, verse 13, it says this. It says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We've all read that passage before. Well, a couple of my buddies I played football with, they would write Philippians 4.13, not the whole scripture, but they would write just Philippians 14 on their wristbands or maybe on a sticker on their helmet or on you know their, uh, the, the, the eye black that they would put on. And then maybe you've seen this done in other places. And in their minds, back then, I think the whole concept was that they interpreted this scripture to mean that, hey, I'm playing in a competition, and so I'm relying on this scripture, meaning like I can do all things, meaning I can play well in this game. I can perform well. Unfortunately, that's a misguided interpretation of what Paul has to say in chapter 4, verse 13 of Philippians. Because when we read the entirety of the con context, Paul actually brings out this idea, and I think it's related to our discussion about the idea of having freedom, but yet still living in a world and in a, in a, in a, in a uh, state where we can experience oppression. Verse 11 of Philippians 4, a little bit before that whole passage, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul writes, not, and I'm breaking into context, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to be abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what Paul is clearly saying, it's an amazing faith. It's saying in whatever situation life brings, I can handle it through Christ. I have learned to deny myself daily, no matter if I'm hungry or if I have plenty. I can do all things through Christ. And so in this, there is a freedom that comes with it. It doesn't mean that we're not going to experience pain. It doesn't mean that we're not going to experience heartache. But when you have your focus so upon Christ, those other things, they don't matter as much. Now, it's easy to say that, right? Because sicknesses are real. And pain is real. Depression's real. It's easy to say that. But we have to ask the question, do we continually allow ourselves in this life to be continually emptied of ourselves and allow for our Father in Heaven to fill us with His Son, Jesus Christ, which enables us to be content in all situations that life puts us in. I'm going to be the first to tell you that I don't think that I've accomplished this. 
I don't. So don't take this as me telling you, you need to do this, what I've mastered. Because many of you have probably mastered this more than I have. The fifth thing, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this is, of course, an allusion to what's known as the year of Jubilee, as we find in Leviticus, the 25th chapter, verses 8 through 17. We're not going to go there, but I'm just going to paraphrase essentially what's there. You can go there on your own, and you can get real detailed and real specific. But essentially, in the Old Testament, when Israel was to enter into the promised land, they were to... You know, they were regulated in how they were supposed to have their agrarian society. And so they had something known as the Jubilee year. So every seventh year was known as the sabbatical year. And so during this year, possessions such as land was to be returned to the original owner. Slaves were to be set free or released, including the debts that maybe someone had accumulated uh, during that time. The land was not allowed to be reaped or harvested or anything like that. And at the completion of seven times seven Sabbath years, which would be 49, you would have the 50th year, which was known the year of Jubilee. People essentially were given a restart. A restart. And here Jesus is using this scripture here in Isaiah, which is a prophecy. He's using this as a metaphor for the salvation that is coming upon those individuals that he's speaking to. That time has come for deliverance, both physically as well as spiritually. That what we see here from this text is such a profound truth because it is the markings of what Jesus came to do in his first, return, in his first appearance. To proclaim God's true jubilee year, the era where God would intervene to redeem humanity from their true oppression. And that was sin. Because we know that sin, the result of it is all the other oppressions that we see in this life. From our fallen humanity, from our jilted you know, uh, human nature and the way we think about things to the way our body works, as, as glorious as it is, and it is, the glory of God shines through humanity. We're created in God's image. And even in a fallen state, that glory, because it's so glorious, God's powerful, it's so magnificent, even in a, in a fallen state, the glory of God still shines through. But we know it shines through in a fallen state. What we see here is a profound truth. I want to point something out where Jesus stops. Because when you go to Isaiah, the 61st chapter, the very last part of verse 2, just reading verse 2 of Isaiah, chapter 61, it says, To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, which Jesus read. But he didn't read the next part of Isaiah's prophecy. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now, some people might not think that that really means much, but I think it does. I think it recognizes that Jesus did not say that last part of Isaiah, the 61st chapter, verse 2, because... That part of God's plan was not for that era that Jesus was here on this earth, but comes later. To conclude, which we still have a little bit more to go, I want to go back to that story I talked about at the very beginning, the story of leprosy, that really, I think, motivated me in this, this message today. Let's go to 
Mark, the first chapter. We're going to read this story, and I think that this is a great illustration of Jesus' words that he spoke in the synagogue there on that day in his hometown of Nazareth in Luke, the fourth chapter. Let's go to Mark, the first chapter, and I want to read this story. It says in verse 40, it says, Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Verse 41, Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, and touched him, and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Verse 42, As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed, and he strictly warned him, and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, and show yourself to the priest, and offer for yourself cleansing, uh, those things, uh, you're cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Verse 45, however, he went out and began to proclaim it freely to sp- uh, and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city but was outside in deserted places and they came to him from every direction. And I can't fault this individual. I would probably do the same thing. And that's because when we do the observations, which we're getting ready to do, we realize just how significant this event was. I got a few observations of the story. The first one was that the background of, op, uh, of leprosy. Verse 40. So lepers during this time, as you well know, they were outcasts of society. If you go to Leviticus, the 13th chapter, you would actually kind of read about how you would deal with people that were in a situation such as this. Lepers were considered ceremonially unclean, and they were cut off from the city limits. It was actually a disease during this time. They didn't have modern medical advances like we have today. It was actually a disease that was considered incurable. Only a miracle could actually cleanse someone of this disease. And we know that there were other diseases that were curable, but not this one. So not only those who had leprosy were they unclean, But even individuals that came into contact with the leper, they themselves became unclean. And they would have to go through different ceremonies and things like that and washings and a period of time to become clean. Now, what what are the implications of being unclean? This is what really gets me and, 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 and just, it kind of breaks your heart if you think about it. These individuals not only were outcasts, from society, but the closest people in their lives. Family, friends, and the temple of God itself. They actually had to wear a certain type of attire. I mean, talk about humiliation. A certain type of dress that they would wear, uh, clothes that is, so people would know that, hey, I'm staying away from that person because they're a leper. They're ceremonially unclean. And if I get near them, one of the requirements was they were supposed to shout, unclean, 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 to let people know as a warning. What an absolute horrible life. Can we imagine what it would be like to be a leper? Living in this life in complete solitude, outcast from society. And as we talked about, and Matt mentioned this earlier in the Bible study, during this time, this The way of worship was very corporate. You worship God in your mind. The way to God was being close to what? The temple. 
the temple became the means and where you became near to God because in your mind, that's where the Holy of Holies is, where the Ark of the Covenant is. All of the rituals and things like that were wrapped up and that was an important part of, of Israel's history, an important part and many things for us to learn. But you weren't just cut off from your community. In some ways, you were cut off from the very worship you believed that you had to participate to really commune and have fellowship with God. What a miserable life. What a hopeless life. And you couldn't get a job. Who would want to employ you? They wouldn't want you to touch anything that you may touch or get near you. And so there's actually evidence when you, some, some of the things I read where there's evidence that these lepers, they would be hanging around dumps and things like that where they, people would put waste looking for food and things like that. That was their life. No employment, no socializing. I guess you could socialize with other lepers, but you were completely outcasted from society. And there was no hope because it was incurable. It was a chronic disease. The last time anyone had been cured of leprosy in the biblical days was in 2 Kings chapter 5 in the days of Elisha where Naaman was cleansed of this ailment. So that's the first observation. The second observation is despite all this, the leper's faith and courage. The leper had faith that Jesus was capable of healing him in spite of his incurability through human means. The leper says to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So the leper had to have known a little bit about this Jesus. He had probably heard about his fame, about this rabbi. Maybe he had heard about a person who's been going around and healing people. But think about the faith it took. I can imagine no religious leader during this time, probably, maybe some of them, would have anything to do with a leper. And that was probably a big no-no to them, to even get, you know, for, for, for a religious leader or a rabbi or something like that to be around someone and they themselves become ceremonially unclean, probably unheard of. So this person out on faith, knowing that he may be rebuked, he may be chastised, looked at Jesus and said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The third observation Jesus' response of compassion and power. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. In fact, when we read the gospel messages, oftentimes the people that typically would be rebuked, like children or you know, different individuals, Jesus is the exact opposite response. Jesus does not rebuke this individual, but has compassion for this man, and he doesn't hesitate. He stretches out his hand, and he touched him, and made the man clean. If you've ever seen the series The Chosen, there's a really moving scene uh, where Jesus touches a, a leper. And of course, it's just a you know, fictitious uh, you know, uh, making of the, of the gospel messages and Jesus and things like that. And there, of course, is some artistic licenses. But for the most part, I think that it does capture a lot of the spirit that we see from the New Testament, especially in terms of the amazement of individuals, this person that they were walking with named Jesus, doing these things that were just unbelievable, breaking social norms and having success in doing so. It says that Jesus does not hesitate when we read the scriptures, but he reached out, touched the man, and healed him. Of 
course, it shows the difference between Jesus and those other individuals during Jesus' day. It shows the love, the compassion, and the mercy of Jesus. That Jesus has a genuine concern for individuals that are hopeless. There's a song from Casting Crowns, I believe, or I don't know if it's Casting Crowns or it is called Jesus, Friend of Sinners. And I'm probably getting it wrong, but it says, you know, talk about, you know, just a leper at your feet, just a grateful leper at your feet. You know, that Jesus came for the outcast, the lost cause, the hopeless, and he did. And all of us are part of that category. Regardless if we really physically have leprosy, if we really have health issues, mental health issues, we know that we are all just lepers at Jesus' feet. And Jesus had compassion on all of us in doing what he did. It shows that Jesus truly came to fulfill the law and the prophets. As we read in Matthew, the fifth chapter, we've read that. Do not think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Of course, we do sometimes use this to show that the law has purpose in the Christian life, but it goes much more deeper than just showing the relevancy of the laws of God. It shows that he actually came to fulfill what the prophecies said that he would come and fulfill. We read Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It's profound. These aren't just words. In that moment with that leper, you could almost draw an analogy, a foreshadowing of what Jesus would later do. When you look at the concept of leprosy, right, and you touching someone, and you yourself taking on that uncleanness, and Jesus not hesitating but doing it, foreshadows exactly what he did for us, and not hesitating but taking on our uncleanness. In totality. Bared upon him. On the cross. That we may live. That we may have liberty. That we may have a freedom from. The oppression. What does this story tell us? It tells us several things. Number one. That Jesus is able to heal us. No matter how hopeless. Our situation is. And that he has compassion for us. And not only that compassion does he have, but he has compassion as a first person experience, or as someone who has lived it himself. He has been in our stead. You know, other religions sometimes, you know, the concept of like, you know, a savior dying or God becoming man, it's just kind of ludicrous to them. It's ludicrous. It's crazy. What's the purpose of that? I think the purpose of that is beautiful because we have a Savior that has been there, that understands. He's an advocate that understands the things that we go through in life. Sicknesses, yes. Health issues, yes. 
not feeling real well. The small things, getting up and making it hard to kind of get up whenever you first wake up. You know, Jesus, he was the sinless Savior of the world, and he was divine, but it didn't mean that he, he didn't experience the same things that we experience. Maybe, you know, disappointment to some extent. He experienced the same things that we experienced, but he lived this life, of course, sinless. It also tells us that through Jesus, we are able to be made clean and enter into fellowship with God our Father. That's what he did to this leper. This leper was able now to go in fellowship with the community, to be near the temple, to walk back into the community of worship as he knew it during that time. And this is what Christ has done for us. He's broke down that barrier between us, that enmity between us and God because of our sin and brought the way and means of reconciliation. Lastly, or last few, Jesus is willing to take on our griefs. He bears it with us. Earlier, Matt talked about in his comments that, you know, this idea of a yoke, that you're yoked with Jesus, and it was, you know, you're sharing this load, and Jesus is walking with us, and we don't take the yoke off and only the hard things. He walks with us everywhere. He goes through it with us. Wherever we are, Jesus is there. And his desire for us is to deny ourselves in order to truly be filled up by him. For us to put down our sin, our ways, our desires, to fix our once blinded eyes on him as he guides us. I want to leave us with one more scripture. When we talk about oppression, Jesus, in his hour of trouble, when he was leaning in to the Father for all of his strength, in his hour of trouble, there in John, the 16th chapter, right before he was arrested, knowing what was going to happen, going through the what must have been great anxiety, and leaning into the Father for his strength to be able to do what he set out to do. He prays for us. He tells us, because he knows, not only does he know about his own trouble, but he knows about the trouble that we're going to experience in this life. In his hour of trouble, in his hour of oppression, where I'm sure that during that time there was all kinds of demonic forces trying to work at him, he leaned on the Father, knowing what we were going to go through at one point, and he said this, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. Tribulation. In this world you will have trouble. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. 